One of my favorite characters in the Lord of the Rings books and movies is Samwise Gamgee. If you have read the books or seen the movies, you know it's a story about a great and evil ring which must be destroyed in order for anything good and hopeful to survive in the world. And it falls on a little band, a fellowship of nine to destroy the ring. Uh, Two men, four hobbits, which are like half-sized people, an elf, uh, a dwarf, and a wizard. And uh, one of the hobbits is the ring bearer. His name is Frodo, and his companion, a fellow hobbit, is Samwise Gamgee. And uh, Frodo is the great hero, the bearer of the ring. He's the one who accomplishes the great tasks and crosses great lands to finally destroy the ring. And Samwise is the one who just kind of goes with him. Um, He is a great, faithful, quiet, humble, serving friend. Uh, Not one who gets credit or is well-known, but who's always there. Uh, And without Sam and his side, uh, the movie and the books make clear Frodo could not have accomplished what he did. Uh, At one point after Frodo heads off by himself, uh, someone tells Gandalf the wizard that Frodo is headed off by himself to destroy the the ring. And uh, Gandalf immediately says, And where is Sam? And he's told, Sam went with him. And Gandalf is immediately set at ease. Good. Because it's Sam, the loyal, loving, faithful friend who enables Frodo to accomplish his mission. Uh, Sometimes I'm particularly drawn to a character in a story because I see myself or aspects of myself in that character, and that is not the case with Sam. Uh, But I have known a few people in my life that I felt were, were a Samwise Gamgee. If either Susie or I ever say that you are a Samwise Gamgee, that's about the best compliment we have to offer. This is true of one of my friends in St. Louis, and he was um, applying for a job, and so his potential boss called me and asked me a bunch of questions as a reference, and one of his questions was, well, can you tell me about his character? What kind of person is he? And without even thinking, I immediately said, well, he's a real-life Samwise Gamgee. He's a loving, humble, behind-the-scenes, faithful servant. Uh, Unfortunately, in the job interview, I don't know if if my point got across. Uh, But that's the way I see Sam. And that's a little bit the way I see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, in a sense, the Samwise Gamgee of the Trinity. One theologian said the Holy Spirit is the shy person of the Trinity. He's... He's that which kind of quietly and faithfully and yet majestically and lovingly works behind the scenes to accomplish all that the Trinity has planned to bring it about. He has, the Holy Spirit has loved you with a great love and done mighty things for you, even though he's quiet and in the background and we don't often talk about him. So I want to remind me and all of us this morning about him and invite us to love him in response to the way that he has loved us. This passage we have in Ephesians is mostly about Jesus 
and the great things that he's done for us. It says in the beginning, hey, God the Father, he planned this stuff, and then Jesus, he did this, and 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 also the Holy Spirit. You're sealed in the Holy Spirit. And uh, that reflects, I think, the way we tend to think about the Trinity. That the Father plans and the Son, we know he accomplishes what the Father planned. He made heaven and earth. In this passage, we're told that he was blameless and lived a righteous life, that he atoned for sin, that he was uh, adopted by God as his son. Not that he was eternally son, but there is a process in which he was received and adopted. He's blessed. He's redeemed and vindicated in his resurrection from the dead. He worked his Father's will. He earned an inheritance that Christ has done all these great things and we know that he will be worshipped forever. And then somehow also the Holy Spirit does something related to sealing. Uh, But I want you, there's so many things to say about the Holy Spirit, but I wanted to stick with this passage because Paul leaves so much assumed about what the Holy Spirit is doing behind the scenes, quietly, faithfully. The first thing, I want you to see is that Jesus accomplishes everything he does by the power of the Holy Spirit. That he's beloved from all eternity, that he comes to earth and is incarnate as man, and then at the beginning of his ministry, he goes to John the Baptist and is baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Now, John the Baptist. I think rightly is confused that what need does Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, very God, a very God, what need does he have to be baptized, to be forgiven of sins, or to have the Holy Spirit come upon him? What can the Holy Spirit add to Jesus? What can God add to God? Nothing. Sort of the implied answer. And yet Jesus says, go ahead. It's fitting for you to do this, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. And what we miss, what John the Baptist missed, is that, yes, God can't add anything to God. But that Jesus is not only God, he's fully human. And that it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that in his humanity he did all the things that he did. That that he is fully human with every weakness that we have, it says that he was tempted in every way that we are tempted. And yet it was by relying on the power of the Holy Spirit in him that he was able to live the righteous life that he did, to live the ideal life in God's eyes, to do the works of the Father, to face the power of sin and death. And then it was by the power of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of life, the wind and breath of life that he was brought back from the dead to ascend on the throne and rule forever. That Jesus lived a life in the power of the Holy Spirit and accomplished all of these great things. So every time it tells us that Jesus did something, we're to remember that the Holy Spirit was was with him as his companion, as his strength, as his Hope as his connection with the Father. That's why he can say, the Father and I are one. I only do that which the Father has for me to do as I'm guided by the Holy Spirit. A 
Another great question, which we don't ask very often, is, okay, so if Jesus did all this stuff, he came and lived a righteous life, he died paying the penalty of sin, and was arisen into heaven, but what does that have to do with us? Jesus fought great fights and won great battles, and now he has a great inheritance in his name. But how does that apply to us? Jesus himself says, in John 14, he's having a dinner with his disciples before he leaves. It's his last time of teaching with him. And he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. In other words, I'm a helper. I came to help. And I'm going to ask my Father, he's going to send you another helper to be with you forever. Namely, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. Now, how is it that the disciples have the Holy Spirit dwelling with them? How do they know him? It's because they know Jesus, and the Holy Spirit dwells in Jesus. Having seen Jesus, they've seen and know the works of the Holy Spirit. You know him, For he dwells with you and will be in you. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Here's the thought. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus, and through the Holy Spirit, Jesus is united with the Father. They're united together through the Holy Spirit bond. And Jesus is going to ascend to his Father, and he's going to send another helper, the same Holy Spirit, which the disciples have known, to be in them. And that with the Holy Spirit in the disciples, the same Holy Spirit bond exists. That Jesus is in the Father, and the disciples are in Jesus. He goes on in the very next chapter, John 15, to make an analogy, the vine and the branches. And he says at the end, you know, I'm, he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, you're connected to me as the result of everything I've been telling you about the Holy Spirit in such a way that we dwell in him and he dwells in us. It's this, if Jesus didn't say it, it would sound blasphemous. That the Father and Son have this relationship, they're united together, and then we get united to Jesus and through Jesus to the Father by the Holy Spirit. It makes sense this is a significant thought for Paul. From the moment of his conversion, Paul's writing this letter, when he was converted, he was literally knocked off his horse because he had been persecuting Christians. And Jesus audibly says to him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That when Paul is persecuting Christians, he is persecuting Jesus. Because Jesus is united to Christians. Christians are united to Jesus through the Holy Spirit so that what happens to Jesus happens to the Christians and apparently, according to Jesus, what happens to us happens to him. That there is this 
to use a theological term, union between Christ and believers through the Holy Spirit. So that when Paul is persecuting believers, he's persecuting Jesus' own body. This is why in Romans 8, Paul makes the argument that there's two categories of people. You're either in flesh or you're in spirit. That to, to be a Christian means to be united in the spirit in Jesus or in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. So, as I mentioned, theologians have titled this term union with Christ. Paul typically just uses the words in Christ or in him. Uh, if you have a pen or a pencil, I'll give you a homework assignment real quick. Grab a pen and pencil if you have one and look at our passage in Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to circle every time you either see in Jesus Christ, in Christ, in him, or in the beloved, because those are all versions of the same thing. In him, in Christ. S- read through the passage. See how many times you see it. Circle them and make a count. I'll give you a second to do that. At least it's in class homework. You don't have to take it home. Uh, does anybody have a count? How many, how many did you find? Amaris has got 10. 11, 12, 12. I found 11, but I guess there's a 12th out there. I believe that's, yes. Yeah, good, there you go. The concept is in there 12 times. Does that surprise anybody? That is apparently a significant thought. Then in the course of two sentences, and by the way, this passage in Greek is two sentences. He mentioned union with Christ in Christ 12 times. Just to give another go at it, here's the thought. That if you have the Holy Spirit in you, through the Holy Spirit, you're in a sense handcuffed to Christ. And wherever he goes, you go. And whatever happens to him happens to you by the Holy Spirit. So when he's blessed, you are blessed. When he is adopted and received as a beloved son, you are adopted and received as a beloved son. You are in Christ. What's happening to him, you are, as John Calvin called it, you are part of total Christ. When God thinks of total, whole Christ, It includes you. When he's redeemed from death, you are redeemed. 
When he works his father's will, you are working his father's will. When he inherits an inheritance, that is now your inheritance. This is the bedrock of the work of the Holy Spirit, uniting you to Christ and applying all those things to you, to us. Later in the same letter, Paul makes another analogy for this relationship, analogy like marriage, where man and woman become one flesh. It's, it's having done a few weddings and been in one, it really is a magical, mysterious thing. I don't know how I can explain it, but two people come into a room and something happens, and when they leave, they're still two people, but kind of not. And when we got married, it, already on our honeymoon, there was this sense that we hadn't even expected that I, I, I suddenly realized I can't hurt my wife without hurting myself. That we, we were planning on going on this whitewater rafting trip, and Susie was almost where she was like, I, I've got to protect him. He's, he's me. Should we do this whitewater rafting trip? It was this kind of this brand new, fresh, mystical thing that we didn't know how to describe but could feel. And in the same way, it's that way with us and the Holy Spirit. It's hard to pin down, to describe or feel, but it's real. It's mystical and magical, and yet we are all united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself is the seal. This is the one tidbit we get about the Holy Spirit in this passage. See, every time you hear in him, you can hear in him by the work of the Spirit. In the end, he says, In him we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So a seal in ancient times was uh, maybe something you wore around your neck or something that was on a ring that you would stamp into wax or clay or ink. And it, was, it was, functioned a little bit like a signature. These days, you would put your seal upon something to say, this is, this is authenticated. This is my stuff. This is my message. Or I'm saving this for later. And so Paul is saying, you've been united in Christ, which, by the way, is the Holy Spirit's work. And by virtue of the fact that you have the Holy Spirit in you doing these things, you can know that's your assurance that the Father has placed his seal upon you. You're his stuff. This is mine. You have been authenticated. And the Spirit is the seal. The presence of the Spirit is how we know that. I got to the point Friday night and Saturday where I realized this is a powerfully encouraging message. It's one of my favorite concepts. But it's easy for it to feel like when it gets down to day-to-day reality, it doesn't really matter that much. I rarely, if ever, have my alarm go off in the morning and immediately think, praise the Lord, I'm united to the Holy Spirit, I can feel it. So I wanted to close with a question. Why doesn't this biblical reality always feel like, why doesn't it always feel like this, like you would expect? 
part of the answer is that every single aspect of salvation, everything described in this passage, including the Holy Spirit's work, is part of what we call the already and the not yet. It's something that's already happened, it's already true, and yet not completely. You can see it kind of sprinkled in the language of the whole chapter. You were chosen before the world. That's a long time ago. It already happened. You have been chosen so that you should be holy. It hadn't entirely happened yet. You were predestined. It's already happened for adoption as sons. Which has happened, but isn't yet happened fully in the sense that it will happen when we're gathered together in the kingdom with the arms of Christ around us. Paul's language is future. You were predestined to, to be fully adopted. You have already obtained an inheritance, something that you, you don't have yet. That we have already been sealed and united with the Spirit, and yet... It's, it's an unchangeable reality, and yet our experience of it can change. All of the elements of the armor of God that Paul talks about later in Ephesians, none of them are to fight for your salvation. None, none of the, the sword, the shield, they're, they're not things to go out and help accomplish what Christ has accomplished. It's all things to fight against your lack of experience of them being real. That make sense? So everything that Christ has accomplished is fact. That won't change, but the way you subjectively experience it can change, and because the devil knows he can't change your salvation, he focuses on what he can change, which is the way you experience it. So the tools, the armor of the Spirit, are given to fight against that. For this reason, I think... Here's the rub. The genuine Christian life almost always has an aspect to it that feels a little bit like an open wound. That you know that hope is there and hope is come and it's not done yet. And so the hardest thing to do is to stay in that place. Communing with the Holy Spirit and praying to the Father and worshiping and singing songs in your heart because as long as you do that, you experience the joy of what has already come and the pain of what has not yet come. It's always that way. And for all of us, it's easier to avoid that and to move to another place where we deal with our struggles by working a plan or by checking out, or being entertained. All of Paul's commandments, suggestions, calls to action regarding the Holy Spirit are about things like don't quench the Holy Spirit, don't ignore Him, engage with Him, worship Him, call out and pray. We must nurture the relationship, which is a reality. My, let me back up a second. A, a friend of mine this last week, who is also an elder of yours, 
uh, encouraged me to make more time in my schedule to read the Bible and pray. And I immediately thought, you know, that's an awesome idea. I should do that. And I immediately found a quiet room where I could have a moment with Scripture to the Lord by myself. And so you know what I did? I opened my computer and checked my email. (laughs) And then I answered some emails. And then I thought, I should spend some time reading Scripture and in prayer. And so I got online and I checked the news and read some blogs that I frequent. And this continued on for about 15 minutes until finally I was forced to realize I am actively avoiding the Lord. I do not want to spend time with him. And I think this is why it's the tension of the already and not yet. It's easier to just keep on keeping on. Just do some stuff, check the news, answer some emails, go home, make dinner, go to bed, watch a movie. It's hard to stay present and engage the Holy Spirit. It's part of the already and not yet. That we long for it and yet avoid it at the same time. In view of the Holy Spirit's work and ministry in our life, what I want to call us to this morning is more prayer, more time reading Scripture and worshiping to ourselves. This is my thought last night. I feel kind of like I'm having a pietistic moment. But you cannot and will not experience this reality to its full extent without times of personal, private prayer and worship. Find some worship songs that you like and listen to them and sing along in your heart or out loud if you're alone enough. And for me, it works best if I listen to the song two or three times and to pray the prayer, it prays along with it. To set aside that time to to know and recognize that we are avoiding the Lord, avoiding the Holy Spirit and what he has provided for us. I, perhaps because of the tension of the already and not yet. If you've been here very long or in any Presbyterian church, you know that Presbyterian pastors always have to have sermons with three points. Uh, I don't know why, it's just kind of a tradition. But back In the olden times, it was actually two points and a poem. And I've never done that before because I just feel that this poem, that's just sort of, that's like language of the 1700s. We don't really really do that. But I'm going to risk it this morning because there's a poem that has meant a lot in my life. And uh, so I'm going to read it because I think it taps into this issue. It's by... Paul Gerhardt, who was a pastor in Germany in the 1600s. He lost several children in infancy. He was an assistant pastor, so I can relate, at a, a large church in Berlin. The church he pastored was actually, stands today, and is the oldest surviving church in Berlin. In the 1650s, the elector in the region, sort of like a governor, had a a different theology than Paul and many of the pastors of his day. And in those days, the governor got to choose the pastors. And so Paul was removed from his position for what he believes. The next year, his, his wife died. He was a man with 
passion and a life of struggles. And I think he survived through the midst of the struggles by living this kind of life, a life of, a, a life of the open wound in connection with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who wrote, O sacred head now wounded, the sort of person who practiced contemplating, remembering, thinking over, receiving, loving the things that Christ has done. He also wrote this poem called, Jesus, Thy Boundless Love to Me. And it is about his desire to maintain that warm, open, and sometimes painful connection. Jesus, thy boundless love to me, no thought can reach, no tongue declare. Unite my thankful heart with thee, and reign without a rival there. To thee alone, dear Lord, I live. Myself to thee, dear Lord, I give. Myself to thee, dear Lord, I give. O grant that nothing in my soul may dwell, but thy pure love alone. O may thy love possess me whole, my joy, my treasure, and my crown. All coldness from my heart remove. My every act, word, thought, be love. My every act, word, thought, be love. This love unwearied I pursue and dauntlessly to thee aspire. Oh, may thy love my hope renew. Burn in my soul like heavenly fire and day and night be all my care to guard the sacred treasure there to guard the sacred treasure there. Oh, that I, as a little child, may follow thee and never rest, till sweetly thou hast breathed thy mild and lowly mind into my breast. Nor ever may we parted be till I become as one with thee till I become as one with thee. In suffering, be thy love my peace. In weakness, be thy love my power. And when the storms of life shall cease, Jesus, in that important hour, in death, as life, be thou my guide, and save me, who for me has died, and save me, Thou who for me hast died. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for...